Well, we're well into the month of Advent and nearing Christmas, so hopefully you've already been uh, pondering the, the story of Christ and His coming. You've been treasuring it up in your heart. You've been meditating upon it, wondering about it, maybe asking new and fresh questions about how He came, what it means, what connections it has in God's old story, and what it means for the future, what it means in your family. Well, over the next couple of weeks, we'll do that together as a church. And so today I have, well, a bit of an ambitious plan for this morning's message. I'm going to attempt to cram the whole story of the Old Testament into one sermon. (laughs) To survey the whole Old Testament through this lens of someone's coming. That's one way we could um, sort of you know, put an umbrella over the Old Testament. That's one way in which we could summarize the whole Old Testament. Someone's coming, and hence a way to summarize the whole New Testament is to say, he's here, he came, and of course he's coming again. So here's the goal of this morning's study. To bring us to awe and wonder. To bring us to worship. At the birth of Jesus, you see that response several times in Luke chapter 2. You know, there are several people there in Matthew 1 and 2 and then Luke 1 and 2. You've got Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah who are the parents of John the Baptist. You have Mary and Joseph. You have the shepherds and the wise men. You have later on in the story... Uh, a prophetess named Anna and a prophet named Simeon at the temple. And all these folks come together to, to give us several different responses to the Savior, to the birth of Christ. And these words are used that they pondered what was happening. They treasured these things up in their hearts. They, they, they responded with faith and with wonder and worship and awe. It says, well, I want those today who have never pondered Christ, never treasured Christ, haven't yet come to awe and marvel at Christ to do those things for the first time. And I want Christians here, myself included, to do those things afresh, to increase in faith and increase in awe and wonder and worship. But how do we get there? How do we do what they did, these people in Luke chapter 2 who responded in such an appropriate way? Well, I think part of how we get there is we try to feel the drama of the story. Now, we do this around Easter time. The week before Easter, we sometimes call it Passion Week or Holy Week. And in church history, part of the purpose of that week is to to live in the shoes of those disciples who were experiencing that week for the first time. Live in the drama of what was unfolding and the days leading up to the cross and what it was like to walk home after the crucifixion on Friday and what what it was like to wander around on Saturday with, with the Messiah crucified and buried and not yet risen. Well, in the same kind of way where we live out that drama, put ourselves in the shoes of those who were experiencing it with the the death and resurrection of Christ, 
I think we should do something similarly with the birth of Christ. We'll try to do that today, to try to try to build up the anticipation of his coming so that we better understand the realization of his coming. And, and of course, that leading to awe and wonder and, and worship. You see, pro- part of the problem for us today is that there hasn't been this generational, growing anticipation of one to come like there was for Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna and Elizabeth and Zechariah. I read a good bit of biography. Birth stories and birthplaces and biographies are you know, usually part of the story, but it's interesting, those stories, birthplaces and stories are, are usually pretty tame, pretty boring, pretty normal. The, the only interest in that birth is that the, the person later went on to be famous, to do great things. And hence, now we're interested in that birth. For most of us, a birth means that mom and dad are real excited. Grandparents are very excited. But everyone else isn't, right? You try to show off your picture, but everyone's like, oh, yeah, great. That's a baby. At least all guys are. I know girls aren't, but guys do respond that way, at least in their minds and hearts. Great. That's, that's a nice picture of a baby. Well, here's my point. When Jesus was born, several handfuls of people knew that this was special right from the beginning. Our interest in Christ's birth is not just because he later went on to do great miracles and teach great things and die an infamous death and be raised in the third day. We're interested in his birth because those who witnessed his birth firsthand saw it as the culmination of God's plan. They saw it as the fulfillment of this big anticipation in the Old Testament It was the long-awaited hope for the world that had finally come. And they felt this and knew this because not just angels told them, not just a star said he was there, but because they knew the Old Testament, their Bibles. So let's go back to the beginning. Let's buckle up the seat of our ears and our minds and hang on for a quick train ride through the whole Old Testament. The first thing is a beginning of promises and people. That's the book of Genesis. It's really just a collection of promises and people. It starts, of course, with Genesis 1 and 2 that God created. And then in Genesis 3, we see the fall, the sin that entered the world with Adam and Eve. Right there in that same chapter, though, as God is explaining the curse that is now a reality in this world He's also giving a great promise, the first redemptive promise. A promised son who will crush Satan and sin. God said to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And her seed shall bruise you on the head, a fatal blow. But it'll cost him something. There'll be pain, his His pain will be a bruise on the heel, not a fatal blow, but there is pain. So a seed to come, a son to come. This son will be the hope for the fixing of the curse and the defeating of Satan and the overturning 
of the problem of sin. And then Adam and Eve have a son. Cain is the first son. Is this him? Is this the one? I mean, wouldn't that just be like God? That in the first generation, the first son, he would fulfill that promise of a son to come who would be the victorious one. Yeah, it wasn't. He kills his brother right off the bat. Right in the beginning of the story of introducing Cain and Abel and their sacrifices, there's jealousy and Cain kills his brother. Not Cain. You go a little further in Genesis and then another character sort of pops out, leaps off the page. It's Noah. He's a kind of a savior, right? I mean, in him and in, in the ark, there's, there's salvation, And in Noah, God is actually beginning a new creation. God's starting over because sin had gotten so bad in this world. God was frustrated. He's angry. He judges this world with a a global flood. And, And Noah is, he's like this believing, faithful prophet. And there... With him, God starts a a new beginning. But not long after getting off the boat, there's some nasty scene where Noah's drunk and naked in a tent. Ooh, not the one, right? Not the one that we've been waiting for. Not the one that has been promised. Then the promises get enlarged later on in Genesis Chapter 12 with Abraham, repeated again in chapter 15, and then a covenant added to it in chapter 17. These promises to Abraham would be that his offspring would be a multitude, a big multitude. And then that offspring would live in a land. They would have a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of blessing and a land of God's presence. And then they would be a blessing to the world. Okay, that's Abraham. Is he the one? Well, no children for a hundred years. Imagine being called the father of a multitude and you have no kids. And then eventually God blesses him with a child named Isaac. Ah, so this is the one. Maybe Isaac's the seed. Maybe Isaac's the one through whom the world will be blessed. Well, get this, not much is mentioned about Isaac at all, at least not as an adult. In the same chapter, chapter 25 of Genesis, Abraham dies and Isaac's sons become front and center in the storyline. There's not much at all there about Isaac the adult. So what about his kids? He has Esau and Jacob, and Esau is the firstborn. Maybe he's the promised one. No. He sold his birthright. For what? Plate of food. He's hungry and he says, I'll give up all the blessings that come to me through my father. Just give me some food. He's not the one. And besides, he was really hairy. (laughs) Really hairy. How hairy was he? I'll tell you how hairy he was. Jacob could dupe his blind father by gluing some goat hair to his arm. And when his dad touched his goat hair arm, he didn't freak out. He said, oh, Esau. <laughs> Yeesh, that's, that's hairy. 
So maybe it's Jacob who gets that birthright, who then becomes the blessed one, even through his sneakily ways. It looks promising. God repeats the Abrahamic promises to Jacob. Jacob's the first one to really enter the land. He, he lays down and he takes a nap in the land. He names a rock. God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. The name of the nation that will eventually come. That looks promising, but he's a scoundrel all the way through. He's, he's really a wimp. He's kind of conniving. He's afraid of his big brother. Well, he is hairy, remember. But if you're tempted to think, well, yeah, but he's the one who wrestled with an angel and prevailed. That says something. Yeah, but listen to what Hosea 12 tells us about how Jacob prevailed when he wrestled with an angel. It says, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and begged for his favor. Maybe you haven't seen that before, have you? Have you thought of Jacob wrestling with the angel as Jacob strong, mighty in faith, powerful, oh, to be like Jacob. Jacob needs a savior too. Jacob only prevails when he recognizes that he can't prevail. That's when God relents and says, all right, I'll bless you. Not Jacob. Was it Joseph? Joseph's kind of next in the story. Jacob had 12 sons, and Judah is definitely an important son. But Joseph is the more prominent at the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis, I'm sorry, Joseph knew from the beginning that God has, had chosen to bless him. So he had, a, he had a fancy coat, didn't he? He had a fancy coat, and he showed it off to his brothers, and his brothers hated him for it. And, and so one day they, they traded him in. They sold him into slavery and told their father that he'd been killed by an animal. And in God's providence, that was exactly The pathway, eventually, though it took many steps to get there, the pathway to to Joseph's prominence in the land. Eventually, he becomes number two in Egypt. And that's also the means by which the family is saved in the midst of a horrible famine. Egypt's a mighty country, a lot of resources, and Joseph had the sense in a dream to store up all the food needed, and so... The famine comes, people need food, they go to Egypt. The brothers and Jacob himself go to Egypt and look who's serving them, look who's providing for them. And the line of blessing through which the promises will come, the promises given to Abraham, it's been preserved now. I mean, Judah wouldn't have survived if there wasn't a Joseph in Egypt to feed him. But no land for God's people yet. Not many people yet. It's just a family thing, right? I mean, they're still holding on to the promises, and God's repeating the promises to them, but this is still pretty much a a family thing. And that's how the book of Genesis ends. The next book of the Bible picks up a few hundred years later, and now God's people are many. They're a million plus. But, a lot of buts here, aren't there? But they're in slavery in Egypt. So we can call this next section the need for righteous rule. 
There's a promise at the end of Genesis which points ahead to what's to come. Genesis 49.10 talks about a lion-like ruler that will come from Judah, Joseph's brother. The people will obey this lion-like ruler from Judah. Well, okay, into the next book. Who, who's the character, the person that sticks out head and shoulders above the others? It's Moses, right? Here's Moses. Is he the, the ruler to come? Well, all kinds of good things could be said about Moses. He's strong. He's courageous. He leads the people. He's full of faith. He knows where he's going and what the goal is. But boy, he complains. He grumbles a lot. Ironically, Moses complains most about the people complaining to him. The people are always complaining, God. So he's got a bit of a temper, right? And so one day God tells him to strike the rock to provide water for the people in the desert. God's going to pull a miracle out here. Water's going to shoot out of a rock when you just hit it. And Moses, in anger, hits it twice. And God says, that is not what I said. That messes with a picture, part of my plan later to come. You will not enter the promised land now. You can see it, and then you'll die. This is it. The thing you've been waiting for, the thing you've been living for, the thing you've been marching for, the thing you've been putting up with these people for, it's not going to come. Well, maybe then... We can understand Deuteronomy 18, that you know, Moses was great, but we, we need more than Moses. Deuteronomy 18.18 18 speaks of a prophet like Moses who's going to come, and the people will listen to him. They didn't listen to Moses, not usually, not often, not like they should, but a prophet like Moses is coming, and he shall speak my words, it says. Well, who's next on the scene? Well, Joshua's the one, you know, who takes the baton from, from Moses. And the book of Joshua begins very hopeful. He's a mighty warrior. He's a great leader. He's godly. And there's a lot of military success under Joshua. You know, he leads the people into the land. And they settle down there. They set up shop in the land that God had been promising long ago from Genesis 12. And all seems very well. The book of Joshua is really one of the high notes of the Old Testament. There isn't too much downside to Joshua, except it ends with a question. You see, Joshua ends the book with a farewell speech. In his dying days, he pleads with the people to be faithful to God, to keep the covenant, to obey him. He offers several warnings, just like the book began. Choose this day whom you will serve. It's again repeated at the end. So the book ends, Joshua dies, and the book trails off with that lingering question. Will the people listen to Joshua? Will the people do what he said? Will the people remain faithful and obedient and pure and holy to Yahweh, God, who rescued them time and time again in the wilderness? Just a question mark. Okay, how about the next book then, Judges? Maybe a plan where it doesn't rest on one guy so much. Let's get a plurality in here. Let's get multiple judges in here. Well... These judges are needed. These judges, of course, are, you know, at a time when 
there are decisions to be made. And some of them were good, and some of them were godly, some of them were wise, but the people at this time are at an all-time low. Judges is a depressing book. The change from Joshua to Judges is staggering. So that the summary of Judges is found in chapter 21. Listen to this, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did did what was right in his own eyes. And then we have another promise. 1 Samuel chapter 2, God says, I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest. And he'll do what's in my heart. He'll do what's in my soul. And I'll build him an enduring house. You see the the promises growing, getting different angles to them? It's like a quilt of promises is being built. And each promise is its own little fabric triangle. So one's laid down and another one's laid down. And the picture's starting to form. It has to be the offspring of Eve one day who will crush Satan's head, overturn the curse and defeat sin. It's got to be Abraham's son. It's, it's got to be got to be the one who can bless the world. And this one will be a faithful priest and he'll do just what God wants. Well, Samuel's a faithful priest at this time. Is he the one? No. The people reject him. They say, give us a king. We want a king like the, like the normal people have. We feel weird here. We don't have a king. Give us a king. That'll fix things. And Samuel at first is a little offended because he, he really does stand out as the leader among the leaders at this time. And so in some ways to reject what's been going on and want a king is to reject Samuel. Though they are also told they're rejecting God by doing so. But, but even still, eventually Samuel agrees this isn't wise because his kids are wayward. So what good is it if Samuel reigns and then he hands things off to his wicked kids? So the people pick their own king. A guy named Saul. He's tall and dark and handsome. He's a good warrior, but he isn't godly. It says God rejected him because he repeatedly rejected God's word. It isn't Saul. He's not the one. Well, is it the next guy in the scene? Is it David? He's going to be the next king, and you get a hint of it right at the beginning. Here's young shepherd David with a sling and a rock, and he defeats a nine-foot giant warrior from an opposing country. That's a real promising start. In fact, he goes on to have a great career as a mighty warrior. The saying was, Saul had killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. So God's favor is clearly upon David. He's a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13 says. Oh, but then there's that snowballing sin with Bathsheba, adultery, lying. Murder, cover-up, unrepentance. Eventually there's repentance, and God forgives. God forgives, but, but this, isn't, this isn't the one. This isn't the faithful priest who will do exactly what's in my heart. 
like God said. Nevertheless, God's faithful and doesn't rest on David. So God not only forgives David, he increases these promises. Another major triangle to put into our growing quilt of promises. 2 Samuel 7. God says to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Wouldn't it be nice just to have the promise? Your home is sure and steady and there and livable and paid for forever. Some of you have paid off your house. And I'm sure when you do that, it's a... We may have to get food money, but the house is paid for. They can't take it away from us. A great thing. How much more for a king to be told, especially in these days of coming and going kingdoms. Kings being overturned at a drop of a hat. A king being told, your kingdom is sure. It'll last forever. In the same chapter, God asks David, will you build me a house to dwell in? Remember, that was an earlier promise in 1 Samuel regarding the faithful priest who will come and God will build him an enduring house. It's all about the temple. God had been dwelling in a tabernacle throughout the wilderness years. They're now in the land several generations later and God says, make me a dwelling, a holy dwelling for my presence and the sacrifices that I've instituted. Eventually, it's clear that's not going to happen in David's time. His son will get to do it. Solomon. Now this looks promising. David's son. There are a lot of promises about David's son. So is it Solomon? He gets to build the temple. He nails it too, right? He does it according to God's prescription. Just like God said. Measurements given. Materials used. It's beautiful. It's grand. It's glorious. And Solomon's reign is famous for its peace. What David fought for, now Solomon enjoys. He's famous for his wisdom. And he's also famous for his leisure. Apparently he has too much time on his hands and gets bored easily. And so he keeps turning to sin after sin. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not Solomon. Now, here's where we have to stop and ask if this is all too pessimistic a view of the Old Testament. That's the third thing. Maybe you'd say, but there are some great people here. I mean, we're skipping over some great people and some great things that they've done and only highlighting the lowlights. Well, many of us view the Old Testament as a a collection of moral lessons. Right? These biographical snapshots, which kind of either tell us, don't be like him, he was bad, or, ooh, be like him, kids, be good. So, where David you know, can defeat Goliath, trust God, even if you have low self esteem, like Veggie Tales says. <laughs> even if you're a little guy with low self esteem, you can defeat the giant asparagus or whatever he is. Be like David. And then you get a little further in the story. Whoa, kids, don't be like David. David should have been out in battle. He's just moseying around on the top of the roof and he sees a naked lady and he looks far too long. Don't be like David. Now, both of those are true. 
I mean, as God's people, we should be courageous, like David. As God's people, we should be holy, unlike parts of David's life. And yet, the whole Old Testament instead is doing something more than that, way more than that. It's not just giving us moral lessons in biographical snapshots. It keeps repeating a theme, a repeated principle that really applies to the whole grand story. All these stories and their failures are telling us this. In his timing, in his way, he must do it. We cannot affect it. He must bring his promises to pass. We cannot make them happen. We cannot be good enough. No good king is good enough. Don't trust in princes. Don't trust in kings. No one has been able to get where God says this thing is going. Oh, one guy moves it an inch in that direction. Another guy can move it a mile in in over here this direction. One guy's a great ruler. Another one's a great warrior. This one's awful wise. This one's godly. And none of them are him. Best case scenario is that there isn't any disappointment until they die. As good as they were, they die. And they pass it off to their kids. And their kids are usually never as good. At worst, these are severely flawed people in the midst of their God-given victories. God-given piety, God-given wisdom. Let me give you the example of Samson, someone I've been talking a bit with my kids about. The story of Samson's an interesting one, not because he's really a good candidate for being the one. He's flawed from the beginning. You kind of know that going into it. But, but it. but it helps us see how to treat the whole Old Testament. It helps us read the Old Testament stories with this growing theme in mind. Here's how. Samson's strong, miraculously strong. He's a warrior. I mean, he can take out whole armies by himself. That's, that's better than Jack Bauer. I mean, Jack Bauer needs Chloe at a computer. Nothing happens. He needs something on his palm. But, but no, Samson is mighty. He has the right enemies, in a sense. He's fighting on the right side, you could say. So what was his downfall? A woman. A woman. Now, now hear that in ancient Near East mindset. In our day and age, if we said, you know, you know what his problem was? A woman. That sounds derogatory. It sounds misogynistic. You know who he was beat by? A woman. I, I know in our culture you can't say things like that, but that's the irony of the story, especially in their culture. Here's mighty Samson. What's his downfall? A woman. Just a woman. And a pair of scissors. That's it. He tells her as they're laying in bed that the the source, the secret of his power is his glorious mane. And she says, oh really? And gives him some NyQuil. (laughs) Snip, snip, snip. And now he's a wimp. That's it. A woman in a haircut. And he's done. His strength 
was great. Supernatural strength, but in himself he is pathetically weak. What a glimpse of a warrior, a mighty warrior. And obviously not the one we've been waiting for, not the one to come. Almost every Old Testament story is like that with a glimmer of hope and then it makes you wonder, could this be the one? Nope. Eventually it leads to some sort of major disappointment. We need to read the Old Testament stories, not merely as moral lessons, but seeing this growing anticipation of one to come. Oh, this looks good. Nope, not him. Over and over. In fact, all the while, these promises of one to come don't fade off in the distance as it, you find out it's not this guy and not that guy. They're getting repeated. And the promises of one to come are not only getting repeated, they're getting enlarged. The quilt's getting bigger, more complex. Which leads to the fourth thing here. The prophets expand the promises. They tell us that he'll be Jesse's son, Isaiah 11. Jesse was David's father. Jesse's son will will come off the the stump of Jesse, a shoot, a, a, a branch, And this branch will have unparalleled righteousness, authority, and peace, Isaiah 11 tells us. Isaiah 7 tells us this one will be born of a virgin. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, get this. Some of the promises also seem to imply that it won't be a person. It'll be God himself who comes and fulfills all these promises. Isaiah 7.14, right at the end, said, a child will be born, a virgin will give birth, and his name will be called Emmanuel. God with us. I mean, who can wear that badge? Who can show up and say, I am God with us? I mean, to say so is to say you're God, is to put yourself on par with God. Isaiah 9 tells us that on the one hand, a child's going to be born, a son's going to be given. On the other hand, we'll call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. How is that going to happen? How can he be born and yet be everlasting? Ezekiel 34 is another place where we see this. Ron referred to Ezekiel 34 earlier in the service and What you see earlier from what Ron was talking about in Ezekiel 34 is God repeating himself that he will shepherd his people. I will search for my sheep and seek them out. I will care for my sheep. I will feed them. I will lead them to rest. I will seek the lost. I will do it. You see it over and over. God is saying he's going to be that shepherd king. And then what Ron read for us is verse 23. I'll set over them one shepherd... David, what? You just said you were going to shepherd them. And you've said it several times. Now you say David's going to do it. And wait a minute, do you mean the David who's been dead for, for several centuries now? Hmm. Another triangle of fabric that we put to the quilt. This growing quilt that we could call Messiah. 
Daniel 9 uses that phrase. 1 Samuel 2, I believe, used that phrase. Messiah as an all-encompassing title for this one who's going to come. The one who keeps being promised. He's going to be a ruler from Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 tells us. A ruler from Bethlehem, not mighty Bethlehem, it's kind of, it's one of the least significant towns, even though David comes from there. And get this, the one who comes from Bethlehem is this mighty ruler. His origin is from of old, from ancient days. What? A ruler who's eternal? Oh, and get this. Another part of the equation is that he's supposed to come, it seems, in suffering and lowliness. You know Isaiah 53, don't you? A whole chapter devoted to this, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our chastising, the chastening for our well-being, fell on him. By his scourging, we're healed. And yet, get this, right before chapter 52... You have God saying there, this same servant, my servant, will prosper. He'll be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Wait a minute, is he going to be high or low? Is he going to be exalted or is he going to be humiliated? Well, it seems both. In fact, right there, the next verse in Isaiah 52, his appearance was marred more than any other man. Suffering and exaltation. No surprise that Zechariah 12 says, They will look on me whom they pierced, and they will mourn. Now, we should ask, with all this building, with all this growing, with all of this seeming hope and then disappointment, isn't anyone coming? Isn't there anyone That's the fifth thing in your notes. Isn't anyone coming? Get this, there's no good candidate during the time of the prophets to to really even consider, oh, there's a good king here, a good king there, but they're not even much of the story. Not like the days where there was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon, someone where you say, is this the one? It's like these two themes are getting divergently further apart. One is getting, the the, the promises are bigger. They're growing bigger and bigger. And the options for fulfilling those promises are getting smaller and smaller. Like a fork in the road, miles up, you know? Now the road is further and further apart becoming clear we can't do it the human race and even judah as a nation is painfully seeing over and over again they are feeling it now that they are hopeless they are helpless at least apart from god intervening so the prophets last part of your Old Testament in your Bibles, they come from different seasons or eras, but, but basically they're, they're giving frequent ongoing warnings about the people's sin and the hardness of their heart. They're getting more and more promises of judgment to come if they don't repent, if they're 
if they're not restored to God. In fact, eventually it leads to what we call the exile, where God takes them out of the land. He takes them out of the land, which is the place of his presence and the place of his blessing and the the place of the promises that were given to Abraham. He takes them out for 70 years, and, and then finally when they're brought back, they rebuild the temple. It looks good. They're back in the land. The temple's being rebuilt. But then in either Ezra or Nehemiah, I can't remember which one, at the end of them, the end of one of them, it says, the old people wept because they remembered the former glory of Solomon's temple. In other words, yeah, they got a temple. Yeah, they're back in the land and it's a two-bit temple. It's a makeshift temple. It's a hack job temple compared to the glory of Solomon's temple. And that's no small thing because this is the place of God's presence and his dwelling, his worship, and his sacrifices. You don't chance. More prophets, more sin, more hardness, more prophecy about one to come, and even new promises of an age to come. And then, silence. 400 years of silence between the last book of our Old Testament and the time that's recorded in our New Testaments. 400 years of no prophets speaking. No warnings. No judgments. Except this eerie judgment of silence. I mean, the warnings are... You know, they're threatening enough. They're scary enough. At least they should be. But what happens when it just is still? When you can hear the cricket chirp? And God hasn't spoken for many generations. When you're used to him speaking, when when you're used to prophets existing, and that's a part of life and culture, and it's no more. That's scary. Has God given up? Has he walked away? Has he just said, forget it then, I'm done with you people. I keep trying to get there. I keep trying to promote this and push this and and, and fix that. And you won't let me. Well, can you sense the desperation now? Can you feel the desperation, the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah? Can you feel the building chorus through the Old Testament? Someone's coming. Is it that guy? Nope, not him. Someone's coming, though. He's going to be like this, like that? No, 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 not like that. Instead, even bigger, better. And then silence. What will be made of these promises? And then. That's what we could call this last point in your notes. And then, Galatians 4.4 tells us about the then. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. A son, born. The fullness of time. Like a, like a pregnant woman about ready to bust. You know, she's filled up. She's full of baby, right? That's the picture here. At the fullness of time, when it couldn't go on any longer, when it couldn't be squeezed in anymore, that's when Christ came. The consummation of the ages, the realization of all that had come before, 
God sent forth his son. Now we can see why Matthew 1 begins with a, the what? Genealogy, right? It matters. It matters. And so chapter 1, verse 1 of Matthew gives us the short version of the genealogy. Here's the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. Two guys who were foremost in receiving great promises about the Messiah to come, the age in which we live. Oh, let me encourage you to read the first two chapters of Matthew and the first two chapters of Luke. If you, I hope you've already done that in this Christmas season, in preparing for thinking through the incarnation, the wonder of his birth, the anticipation of what was to come for millennia in the past. I pray you've already done that, but if you haven't, maybe do it today as a family. Just four chapters. And, and look for especially in Luke, especially in Luke 1 and 2, to see all these hints backwards, all these references to what's come before, all these acknowledgments of promises being fulfilled. You can't go but a few verses in Luke 2 without there being some reference to what God has already said, what he's already promised, what he's already done, that this is what was promised and this is the age to come. And only Jesus could have fulfilled that intricate recipe for saving hope that was given in the Old Testament. The quilt looks like him and no one else. The Old Testament's a story of a few mighty warriors who at their best could defeat the Assyrians but could do nothing to defeat Satan, nothing to defeat their own sin. That's really where the problem lied, right? The Old Testament story is one of a few good rulers who at best had a generation or two of a modicum of peace. The Old Testament is a story of a few wise men who do some extremely foolish things. It's a story of a few real godly principled men who, boy, had their blemishes, needed forgiveness, must repent and believe that there's a righteousness outside of themselves that's only in the one to come. The Old Testament's a story of sons, the repeated promise of a better son, a bigger son, and of course, God's own son, a son who would defeat Satan and sin like only he could, a son who would begin a new creation like drunk naked Noah never dreamed about. A prophet better than Moses who gives us God's word because he's the word in the flesh. An eternal ruler, forever on his throne, unshakable. A true and faithful shepherd who rules and leads and guides and protects and feeds and cares and knows his sheep by name. A son who would be the embodiment of God with us. Emmanuel, he's come, he's here, he dwells in our midst, he is our peace. He's our salvation. That's what Mary and Joseph see 
in the manger. That's what they hear from the angels. That's why the angels sing like they do. That's what causes Simeon at the temple to say, I can now die. My eyes have seen him. I've been waiting. I've been praying. I can now go. That's what gets shepherds and wise men to just pick up and walk. They got to see it. An angel can tell them. A star will show them, but they don't stay planted. They don't just say, oh, he's here? Okay, well, I'm sure we'll hear about about that later. No, they don't. They go. They see. They wonder. They marvel. They awe. They worship. And that's what we mean. All this is what we mean when we sing Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Oh, these themes are so littered throughout our, our hymnody this time of year. Now, hopefully, we've moved just an inch closer, maybe a mile closer, to the faith and the feelings of those there in Luke 2, the early chapters of the Gospels, those who pondered and treasured and responded in faith and awe and wonder and worship. And get this, we know more than they did, in a sense. Uh, They maybe knew their Old Testaments better than we do. But we know the rest of the story, like Paul Harvey says. We know that he died. We know on the third day he was risen. We know that in his death and resurrection, there is forgiveness to all who come to him. We know that he now lives. He reigns from heaven. We know that the story's not done, painful as it still is now. In principle, this new age has dawned, and he will bring it someday to its fullest, global, visible realization. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. One day, his humble servantry, his love for others will permeate his new creation perfectly without rivalry, without pride, without sin, without bitterness and resentment. Praise God. Praise God.